Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part 4, entitled, What Canadian Pilots Did in the Cataracts of the Nile. And now suppose we follow these Indians to their reservation at Kahnawaga, where the government had given them land and civic rights and encouragement to peaceful ways. The surest time of year to find the pilots at home is the winter season, for then, with navigation frozen up, they have weeks to spend drifting along in the sleepy village life, waiting for the spring. They are in many hearthfire circles, only, alas, the hearth is a commonplace shiny stove more often than not. We may listen to the tales without end of rapids and river, while men smoke solemnly and women do beadwork and moccasins for the next year's peddling. We may hear Big Baptiste tell for what exploits of the paddle his head came to be on the ten-dollar bill of Canada, set in dignity and feathers. And here Big John, famous for his years as a steamboat pilot, describe his annual shooting of the Lachine Rapids at the opening of navigation, when first of all pilots, he goes down in his canoe. This is a time-honored custom, so that the others may be sure it is safe to follow. He will give us the story, too, amid nods of approval, of shooting these same rapids for a wager on a certain New Year's Eve day, and coming down safely, ice and all. There, sir, is the paddle he used, if you doubt the tale, and the canoe lies out in the snow. And be sure we shall not have been long in Kahnawaga without hearing of the proud part these Indians took in the British expedition up the Nile in 1884 to relieve Khartoum. Treasured in more than one household are these words of Lord Wolseley, written to the Governor-General of Canada. I shall desire to place on the record not only my own opinion, but that of every officer concerned with the management of the boat columns, that the services of these voyagers have been of the greatest possible value. They have on many occasions shown not only great skill, but also great courage in navigating their boats through difficult and dangerous waters. How many men did Kanawaga send on this expedition, I inquired, Fifty-five men besides Lewis Jackson, said one of the Indians. Oh, said I, and... and who is Lewis Jackson? The Indian's face showed plain disgust that there should be anyone who did not know about Lewis Jackson. Lewis Jackson was the leader. He's our chief man. He lives over there. It resulted in my calling Mr. Jackson, a big, powerful man, fully meriting, I should say, the high opinion in which he was held. If there's any strain in him, it must be very slight. He would pass rather for an uncommonly energetic Englishman, with such a fund of adventure to his credit, and so entertaining a way of drawing upon it, that one would listen for hours while he talks. Jackson made clear to me what important duty was given the Canadian voyagers in this Nile campaign. By their success or failure in taking the heavily laden boats up the cataracts, Lord Wolseley proposed to decide whether the troops for Gordon's relief should go straight up the Nile or around by the Red Sea in the desert. It was the river if they succeeded, it was the desert if they failed, and 20,000 soldiers waited at Alexandria in a fever of impatience, while Jackson and his band, with some hundreds of voyagers from other provinces, let it be seen if their training on the St. Lawrence would serve against the river perils in ancient Egypt. Lord Wolseley was confident it would, for during the real rebellion he had found out what stuff was in these men. Still, he dared not take his army until it was certain that these formidable cataracts could be surmounted, and that meant a month let the men strain as they might at the paddles and hauling lines, a month to wait, a month for Gordon to wait. Oh, said Jackson gloomily, if Lord Wolseley had only trusted us without any trial. 
Why, there was nothing, sir, in that Nile River. We hadn't tackled a hundred times as boys right here on the St. Lawrence. When you talk of cataracts, it sounds big, but we've got rapids all around here, just plain, everyday rapids that'll make their cataracts look sick. Of course, we did it, did it easily, but when we got up to the top of the whole business, where was our army? Back in Alexandria, sir. And it makes a man sad to know that those boys in Khartoum were dying just then. It makes a man mighty sad to know. One sees what ground there may have been for such lament on turning up the dates of this unhappy Nile expedition and the heartaches at the sight of those dumb figures. Think of it. The relief party reached Khartoum about February 1st, 1885, too late by less than a week. Khartoum had fallen. Khartoum, sore-stricken, lay in fresh smoking ruins. And when at last British gunboats, firing as they came, steamed into view of the tortured city that had hoped for them for so long, there was no General Gordon within the walls to thrill with joy. General Gordon was dead, cut down ruthlessly by the Arabs a few days before, killed on January 27th, and his countrymen so near, so short a distance down the river, that their camp might have been made out with field glasses. What a difference here a little more hurrying would have been, a very little more hurrying. It would be interesting indeed if we might hear the whole story of these months spent in fighting a river, in battling with cataract after cataract, in rowing and steering and sailing and hauling a fleet of boats and supplies for an army up, up, up into unknown rapids, through a burning desert, such a long, long way. It would be an inspiration could we know in detail what these pilots did and suffered, what perils they defied, and how some of them perished. In short, what problems of the river they went at, and how they fared in solving them. That would make a book by itself. A few things we may know, however. This, for instance, that while the maps put down six cataracts in the Nile between Cairo and Khartoum, say 1,500 miles there are, in truth, many more than six. Between the second and third alone, there are more than six, and some of them bad. Also that the river beyond the third cataract curves away in a great rambling south, so that Lord Wolseley planned to send an expedition, as he actually did, straight on from that point by a shortcut across the desert. The important thing then, and the difficult thing, was to reach the third cataract, and upon this all the skill of the voyagers was concentrated. The first cataract, about 500 miles above Cairo, is fairly easy of ascent, and the second cataract, some 250 miles further on, is perhaps the most dangerous of all, and resembles its rival at Lachine in this, that the Nile here strains through myriads of foam-filled islands strewn in a channel for a length of seven miles, like teeth of a crooked comb. A balloonist hovering here would see the river streaming through these islands in countless channels that wind and twist in a maze of silver threads. But to the lads in the boats, these silver threads were so many plunging foes torrents behind torrents, sweeping down roaring streets of rock, boiling through jagged lanes of rock. Up that seven-mile way the pilots had to go and keep their craft afloat. Jackson described the boat they used in this hazardous undertaking. They were first the ordinary whaleboats, about 25 feet long and about five feet high, with a crew of ten Dongolese at the oars and two or three sails to catch the helpful northerly winds. Overhead was an awning stretched against the scorching sun, and around the sides were boxes and bags of provisions and ammunition, five or six tons to a boat, piled high for shelter against bullets, for no one could tell when a band of Arabs, lurking at some vantage point, might fall to picking off the men. 
At a cataract, the crew would go ashore, save two, a voyager in the stern to steer and another in the bow to fend off rocks, or in case of need, give one swift, severing hatchet stroke on the hauling rope. For, of course, the ascending power came from the line of Dongolese, black fellows with backs and muscles to delight a prize fighter, who, by sheer strength of body, would drag the boat, cargo and all, or sometimes lightning of her cargo by the land carriers, up and up with grunting and heaving against the downrush of the river. And woe to the boat if the hatchet man failed to cut the rope at the very second of danger. So long as the craft can live, his arm must stay uplifted, yet he must cut instantly when it is plain that she can live no longer. And here one marvels, for how can anything be plain in a blinding, deafening cataract? And how shall the man decide, as they rise on a glassy sweep and hang for an instant over some rock gulf beaten into by tons of water, whether they can go through it or not? Truly, this is no place for a wavering nerve or a halting judgment. The man must know and act. Know and act, because he is that kind of man. And even so, in the hard places above the second cataract, two Indians from Kanawaga, Morris, and Captain, fine pilots both, held back their blades too long, or striking as the boat plunged, missed the rope, and paid for the error with their lives. And even with hauling lines cut in time, the pilots have only changed from peril to peril. For now, they are adrift in the cataract, and they must shoot down unknown rapids, chancing everything, swinging into shore as soon as may be with the help of paddle and sail. Then is all to be done over again. The line made fast, the black men harnessed on, in the risk of a new channel encountered, as before. Thus days or weeks would pass in getting the whaleboats up a single cataract, and sometimes they would face the still more formidable task of dragging a whole steamboat up a rapids, with troops aboard and with stores to last for a week. Then, how the hauling men would swarm at the lines, and shout queer African words, and strain at the ropes when the orders came, until knees and shoulders scraped the ground. This was no problem for the untutored mind, but took the best wits of the royal engineers and gentlemen from the schools who knew the ways of hitching tackles to things as to make pulley blocks work miracles. At least it seemed a miracle the day they started the big sidewheeler, Nassif Kier, up the second cataract with five housers on her, three spreading from her bow and two checking her swing on either quarter and her own steam helping her. There stood five hundred Dongolese ready to haul, and there was the whole floating population, pilots, soldiers, and camp followers, gathered on the banks to wonder and to criticize the job which nobody understood but half a dozen straight little men in white helmets who stood about on rocks and snapped things out in English that were straightaway yelled down the lines in vigorous Dongolese. It was trigonometry speaking and the laws of component forces. Confound those haulers! Tell them to slack away, thou the starboard housers! Tell them to slack away! It was respectfully presented to Mathematics Esquire that the haulers in question couldn't slack away any more without letting their housers go or tumbling into the rapids, for they were on one of the little islands, holding the steamer back while the landlines hauled against them. Then in they go, ordered trigonometry. Tell them to get over to that next island. Tell them to get over quick. And over they went, the whole black line of them, right through the rapids, swimming and struggling in the buffeting surge, getting across somehow. Housers and all, where white men must have perished. And the steamboat had gained a hundred feet. Then one of the front line of haulers, in turn, had to move forward to an island to swim for it with six hundred feet of housers slapping at the river as they dragged it. What a picture here, as these naked men leapt in, fearless, each with a flashing bayonet thrust in his thick white turban. 
Mathematics Esquire had no notion of trying this sort of thing when he changed islands, vastly preferring his trolley blocks, and would presently be hauled across on a rope trolley as passengers are swung ashore from wrecks by life-saving men. That made a picture, too. Thus slowly, with infinite pains, they worked the patient steamboat, length by length, island by island, torrent by torrent, up through the great gate, Bob el Kabir up to the very headwaters of the second cataract, and there, with victory in their grasp, saw the forward hawser snap suddenly with the noise of a gun, and the old side-wheeler swing helplessly into the main rush of the river, swing clean around as the side-lines held, and then started down. Whereupon it was, Cut hawsers! Everybody! And dropped the pulley blocks and the tackle fixings, useless now, and let her go. Let her go, since there was no stopping her. And heaven help the boys on board. Then, amid shouts of dismay, the big boat, Nasif Kier plunged forward to her destruction, while the mathematical gentlemen stared in horror. Then they stared in amazement, for look, she keeps the channel. She is running true. Wonder of wonders, she's shooting the rapids, shooting the greatest cataract of the Nile, where boats of her tonnage have never passed before. The Nasif Kier was saved, and every man aboard her, and every box of stores. She was saved by a humble Canadian pilot who had never studied trigonometry who stepped to the wheel when he saw peril and steered her down those furious rapids as he had steered other boats down other rapids on the old St. Lawrence. After that, when the expedition found itself in trouble in the upper cataracts, say those of Tangur, or Akashi, or Ambagol, or Dal, and when the Royal Engineers had drawn up some neat plan with compasses and squares for doing a certain thing with a boat, and had proved by the books that it could be done, and agreed that it should be done forthwith, then someone would usually say, just at the last, as an afterthought, I suppose we might as well have one of those Voyager chaps, just to see what he thinks of it. And they usually had him in. Thus ends Part 4 and the chapter, The Pilot, Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat, read by Jerry Beckert.